Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. Today is part two of our discussion of the 1973 Supreme Court case Roe v. Wade. Last time we introduced this landmark document and we covered about half of the points of the case. And today we will share our thoughts on some of the key points from the second half of the text. And again, I am so happy to be joined by my reading partner, Lindsay McPhee Hickok. Hi, Lindsay. Hi, Amy. So last time we ended our episode with the story of Manaz in Pakistan. And after we recorded that episode, I was thinking that I want to share another story, this time about someone that I know personally. Um, this is a story of a very, very dear friend of mine, and I won't say her name in order to protect um, the anonymity of her and her family, but Lindsay, you remember who this was. I do. Um, so... When I was a new mom with just baby Lindsay, I had a neighbor who had just had a baby at the same time. Um, and so she had a little boy that was just exactly Lindsay's age and we became friends. We took turns watching each other's baby so we could exercise. And then inevitably we would just end up staying at each other's houses and chatting and we'd eat lunch together. And we kept like kept our own food at each other's houses um, because we were together so often. Um, we served in church together, spending hours and hours outside of church in planning meetings and doing service for that congregation where we lived at the time that had a lot of needs. And so we did some really meaningful work together. Um, and then we got pregnant with our second babies at the exact same time. And so we went through those pregnancies together and um, ended up having our babies within just a week of each other. So then we had our first two kids that were the same ages. Um, we shared a lot of really deep conversations. She had a master's degree in social work and we both loved learning. We both loved reading about uh, psychology and she was just a really curious person and a deep thinker and she was super fun. Um, she was one of the best friends I've ever had in my life. So eventually she and her husband ended up moving to a different state so that he could go to law school. And I was devastated that she moved. Um, but we talked on the phone sometimes. We weren't super great about keeping in touch. That was before um, texting and neither of us were really phone talkers. Um, so we, we lost touch a little bit, but um, she reached out one day and said, hey, I just want you to know, I just got diagnosed with melanoma. Um, I'm, and she, she told me she was near one of the best cancer hospitals in the country, but that it was complicated because she was pregnant with her third baby. And so they couldn't treat the cancer aggressively like they would have wanted to. So she and her husband um, had to make the choice of what to do. She chose to keep the pregnancy and to do a very, very complicated and difficult balancing act of doing what they could do. <clears throat> to treat the cancer without hurting the baby. And she carried the baby as long as she could. And then when the doctors decided the baby was healthy enough and um, would be okay outside the womb, they took the baby um, and delivered the baby by C-section. And the plan had been to battle the cancer aggressively as soon as the baby was out. Um, but by then it was too late. And she died six days after the baby was born, leaving her husband with their two little boys and their newborn in the NICU. Um, obviously, this is really hard for me to talk about. It's been about 14 years since she died, and I still can't say her name without crying. But the reason I wanted to share this story is not really because about what she specifically chose to do, but I just want to tell her story because my friend was a smart person, a really smart person. She was a courageous person. She was a moral person and a wise person. And she happened to be a spiritual person too. And when I think of her being in that agonizing, excruciating situation, I have two really strong urges looking back. The first is that I just want to hug her 
and tell her she's good and brave and that I love her. And the second very strong urge I have is that I want to clear the room to protect her from anybody who thinks they know what is best for her and just tell them to go home and keep their opinions to themselves. I know that in that moment of anguish, my friend brought in her husband and her family and a team of excellent doctors, and she was a person of faith, so I know she prayed every second of that time while she was making her decision. And I just don't think it's anybody's right to judge her, to judge her decision or tell her what was right for her life and her family. That was nobody's right but hers. And as I've read more and more stories of girls and women, and you can go on the website if you want to read some, I just have that same urge. I want to hug them and say, you are brave, you are smart, you are wise, and then ask them, who do you trust to support you while you make this difficult choice? And then clear the room of everyone else so that that girl or that woman can think clearly and have every option available that she and her doctor think is best. Amy, thank you so much for sharing that story. Um, I think that you are brave for even just telling that really personal um, story. And I think you're exactly right that um, these are difficult decisions. And even after the woman makes them, um, in your friend's case, I'm so sorry that she passed away. Had she not passed away, she may have revisited it for the rest of her life. And so I think you're exactly right that everyone needs to just keep their opinions to themselves because most times women will revisit it from every angle themselves. Mm -hmm. So that was a really complicated situation. I think whenever you're weighing maternal health against fetal health, it can feel impossible. And my heart just, I just feel like my heart's aching for the people that have to make those really hard choices. Yeah. Thanks, Linz. Me too. I, I, my heart aches too. And I also just want to say too, that making abortion safe and legal for all women so that it's an option for any and all of the different complex circumstances they find themselves in, which a lot of them, I can't even imagine what those might be. That doesn't mean that a woman ever has to have an abortion, right? If a woman feels for any reason, religious or otherwise, that she doesn't want to end her pregnancy, she never has to, right? That will never be imposed on her. Um, But it also makes sure that her private beliefs won't be imposed on someone else. Exactly. Right? Yep. Um, So I just wanted to emphasize that if you don't want an abortion for any reason, if it's against your religion, if it's against your personal convictions, you never have to have an abortion. That will never be imposed on a woman. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, well, let's start back into Roe versus Wade. Um, Last time we highlighted some parts of the historical timeline, and we'll continue that now by talking about the tradition of American law in the 19th century. So first, the document explains how English common law was adopted by different states differently. And remember last time we talked about how common law is just basically law that's kind of practiced by people, but it's not necessarily codified, and that America inherited a bunch of that English common law, but then it was interpreted differently by different states. So Justice Blackman goes into a lot of detail in Roe v. Wade, but the main point is this, quote, it is apparent that at common law at the time of the adoption of our constitution and throughout the major portion of the 19th century, abortion was viewed with less disfavor than under most American statutes currently in effect. Phrasing it another way, a woman enjoyed a substantially broader right to terminate a pregnancy than she does in most states today. At least with respect to the early stage of pregnancy, and very possibly without such a limitation, the opportunity to make this choice was present in this country well into the 19th century. End quote. Okay, then the document goes on to describe how that attitude of where it was relatively open and available or or that there wasn't um, criminalization 
in common law changed in 1857 when the American Medical Association Committee on Criminal Abortion was formed, and they began a campaign against abortion rights. So Roe versus Wade cites this campaign as a huge turning point in American attitudes. Um, and, and Roe v. Wade again says, quote, In 1871, a long and vivid report was submitted by the Committee on Criminal Abortion. It recommended, among other things, that that it be unlawful and unprofessional for any physician to induce abortion or premature labor without the concurrent opinion of at least one respectable consulting physician, and then always with a view of the safety of the child, if that be possible, and calling the attention of the clergy and of all denominations to the perverted views of morality entertained by a large class of females, I and men also on this important question. End quote. Okay, so several things stand out to me from that quote. Um, first, again, I have to point out that the American Medical Association was comprised of all men at that time, and they were marshalling the forces of doctors, who of course were all men at the time, and the clergy, again, 100% men. Um, to make this decision on a matter that takes place 100% inside of women. Um, and then further, um, the American Medical Association Committee on Criminalization, they describe the, the women's views as perverted views of morality. And that was just upsetting to me. I just think, who gave them the right to make the judgment? Yeah, of... how dare they say what uh, what a woman's morality is and to call it perverted, like it's um, backwards or, you know, misguided. Yes, right, about something that is literally by definition happening only in a woman's body. Right. It's just so presumptuous. And then the other two things that I saw as being problematic were the phrases, quote, always with a, always with a view to the safety of the child. And of course, I care very much about the safety of the child. Of course, that's so important, but it doesn't say the mother, mm -hmm. right? There's no mention of the mother's safety and that it be unlawful and unprofessional for any physician to induce abortion or premature labor, right? I just think like, who? you're not a woman. Mm -hmm. So anyway, what did you think of those things, Lindsay? Yeah, it's so problematic, just like you say, for, for the association to be making these claims about morality. And I also was really bothered by them focusing only on the baby, not on the mother. It was really interesting to me that it, they made it unprofessional to induce premature labor. Just as a historical note, um, we induce labor prematurely um, frequently now, if there's um, anything that's threatening the life of the baby or the mother, preeclampsia, diabetes, um, if there's a, a multiple, we will sometimes do a premature labor or a premature delivery. Um, so that was interesting historically. Hmm. To the question about focusing just on the baby and not the mom, I do want to give a bit of background. Um, during this time, um, at, at which the statement was given, doctors practiced what was called medical paternalism. Mm. It was believed that only a doctor could properly understand symptoms and draw useful conclusions. During this period, the prevailing consensus was that disease was nothing more than symptoms, and that meant that the individual history of the patient didn't matter in providing care, so that the patient, him or herself, was rather irrelevant in the medical encounter. Um, and so this was how all medicine was practiced. But if you put that light on obstetrics, the woman is irrelevant. And all that matters is just delivering the baby. The symptom is the pregnancy, right? And mm. you just deliver the baby. Um, and so you're not really even thinking about the woman. And I'm just really glad we know and do better now. Medical paternalism fell out of favor towards the end of the 20th century. Um, so... That's actually crazy when you think about it, how long that lasted. Mm. But um, doctors now consider the views and experiences of their patients as critical information when they're developing a care plan. There's a lot of focus actually in the hospital for nurses and doctors to be communicating, to be asking, what is your preference? What can we do to, to help this experience be yours? 
So it's very different from the medical paternalism. Oh, that's so interesting. That's such a good point. Um, and that reminds me of the episode that we did on the yellow wallpaper. You've read that story, right, Lynn? I have. Yeah, that story was about a new mother with postpartum depression, and that was written at the end of the 19th century. And remember how she wasn't taken seriously at all by her doctor. And um, so anyway, your your explanation of medical paternalism makes a lot of sense when I remember that story. Um, and it also makes me think of, you know, again, this, this uh, Roe versus Wade episode, being a part of the Breaking Down Patriarchy Project, paternalism, of course, comes from the Latin pater for father, right? And it's the same root as patriarchy. Um, and so that that concept of, of, you know, doctors who were men making the rules and also just kind of like overriding the, the thoughts and wishes of the patients, because even if it was benevolent, they just believed they knew better, Right. No matter what the patient was saying, they just thought, oh, no, 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 no. You need to trust me because I'm a doctor and I know better than you do and not taking into account what the patient is actually experiencing. Is yes. that right? Yes. And I can see that being um, more helpful maybe with, you know, with cancer or kidney stones or things. Um, and also obstetrics doctors know a ton. Yeah. And so we're not saying we don't need the doctor's wisdom, but the lived experience of a woman with a pregnancy, uh, that's that's critical. You've got to listen to her her history and her experience and how she's feeling about things. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. Okay. So our next point comes um, from nearly 100 years later in 1967. Um, this is, again, the American Medical Association Committee on Criminal Abortion. And in 1967, apparently they were still kind of campaigning against abortion rights. And um, some of these rules in the next part that I'm going to read sound better. So, Lindsay, I'm curious to hear what you think. Um, it says there should be no abortion, quote, except when there is documented medical evidence of a threat to the health or life of the mother or that the child may be born... Oh, or that the child may be born with incapacitating physical deformity or mental deficiency, or that a pregnancy resulting from legally established statutory or forcible rape or incest may constitute a threat to the mental or physical health of the patient. Two other physicians chosen because of their recognized professional competence have examined the patient and concurred in writing, and the procedure is performed in a hospital accredited by the Joint Commission on accreditation of hospitals. Yeah, what do you think of those Yes, things? yes, this is good. This is a this is good progress because now we're talking about the health and the life of the mother. Um, we're not just talking about, well, we'll allow decisions and termination if the mom's going to die, but we're also talking about if her health is going to be completely destroyed. Um, and we're also looking to cases of physical deformities, mental deficiencies. You can take that either way, actually. But I think it's good that we're looking at this as more of a nuanced and complicated um, question. Um, I do take issue um, with the part that says an abortion would be allowed if a pregnancy was from legally established rape or incest. Um, legally establishing rape or incest is, in my opinion, nearly impossible. Um, it's estimated that less than 25% of rape is reported, less than 10% for incest. Um, and that's just what's reported. Hmm. Rape kits in many areas are backlogged. Victims often don't get medical help. And so then that's also, they're not getting evidence right away, mm. and most don't ever even seek legal help. So giving them the option of an abortion, um, but then making it hinge on having the legal system involved, that's ridiculous. It makes it seem like we're giving them options, but that's not even really an option. Um, most women never really get a, a legal ruling that they were raped or that they were the victim of incest. So yeah, I think we need to... Just listen to the women again. Mm -hmm. If they if they want an abortion, first of all, I don't think they I don't think it's any of our business if they got raped or have been the victim of incest. But if you are going to ask them, certainly don't make them get a legal document or 
or a court case going. Mm -hmm. And like that reminds me too of what you said in the last episode about even Norma McCorvey, right? When she came in and she had like cut wrists and was ball and said, I, I need, I'm pregnant and I cannot have this baby. I need help. And then she was you know, the the lawyer actually then used her as kind of the face of this issue. And then so in the meantime, as all of this legal stuff happened, her pregnancy just progressed and she ended up having the baby. And I'm just thinking of some poor girl or woman being raped and then having to go into the, you know, the, the station, the police station, get examined. Most like you just said, the, the, the statistics say that most women just will not do that. It's so traumatizing to do those kinds of examinations and to get evidence. And then, like you said, even if they do that, then the rape kit sits on the shelf sometimes for years, let alone like you would need to act so fast to get that rape kit kit process then to have the pregnancy comes and goes. Yes. In the meantime, that's not realistic that that would ever help. Mm -hmm. Right. Because it takes months or years to establish. Yes. Even if it goes to trial, which a lot of times then the rapist is acquitted. Yes. Yeah. It's just not right it's, anyway. It's it's like they're they're trying to give them that that option and saying, We'll work with you. You know, you can do it if you can pursue an abortion if this has happened to you. But in reality that's not really what's ever going to be helpful. Yeah. It just doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, Well, putting that condition aside, there were many good developments happening in the 1960s and 70s. So paternalism is declining, and the American Public Health Association then was adopting rather helpful standards. Um, Their national recommendations included um, having safe, clean environments. They said, if you're going to have an abortion, we need you to have a highly trained professional um, performing it. And if the person would like to have counseling, they can have counseling, but we do want to talk about contraception and sterilization with every patient. Um, so this, these kinds of recommendations are happening right during the era of Roe v. Wade. So the American Public Health Association was making these strides in recognizing that abortions do occur and that women seeking them need help. But that was happening kind of in a national body, state by state. Things still varied very greatly, like in Texas, where Roe was challenging Wade. Abortion was still criminalized. Ah, that's, yeah, that's really helpful. Um, Okay, so in the next part, the document lists three reasons why laws criminalizing abortion were advanced in the 19th century. We'll cover them quickly, but I do want to cover them because they bring up some important issues. So the first one offered is that, quote, it has been argued occasionally that these laws were the product of a Victorian social concern to discourage illicit sexual conduct, end quote. Um, That can't still be the case because the law in Texas didn't discriminate between unwed and married mothers. Um, However, I have heard that argument a lot right? That if abortion is legal, then people will have sex all the time because there won't be any consequences and it will just encourage premarital sex. So I hear that in religious um, contexts a lot. I really think that's silly because (laughs) people aren't going into sexual encounters thinking, oh, no biggie. If we conceive, we'll just have an abortion. I I don't think, you know, you're thinking that far in Mm -hmm. advance. Plus, I really don't like the idea of having the consequence of illicit sex is that you have to now have a baby. Oh. We're going to punish you with a child. Oh. I, I just think the whole thing's a little bit convoluted. Yes, that is such a good point. That's horrible because then who suffers? The child. The child and the parent. And the mother. And everybody yes. suffers, right? Yes. Oh, that's such, yeah, that's a good point. Okay, a second reason that um, people proposed that abortion law became so much more strict in the 19th century is concerned with abortion as a medical procedure. Quote, when most criminal abortion laws were first enacted, the procedure was a hazardous one for the woman. This was particularly true prior to the development of antisepsis. Abortion mortality was high. Even after 1900, and perhaps until as late as the development of antibiotics in the 1940s, standard modern techniques such as dilation and cooterage were not nearly so safe as they are today. 
Thus, it has been argued that a state's real concern in enacting a criminal abortion law was to protect the pregnant woman, that is, to restrain her from submitting to a procedure that placed her life in serious jeopardy, end quote. So first of all, I do appreciate the concern, actually. Sure. I mean, I think it's understandable that lawmakers would want to protect the safety of the citizens, that it's rational to me. Um, but it is patronizing, I think. Like you described that attitude of the medical paternalism when when they talk about the state and the state is all male overriding a woman's wishes in the supposed notion that they want to protect her, right? And if she's saying, no, I want to do this procedure and them saying, no, you may not because that's not safe for you. That sounds to me like um, a parent-child relationship um, where you know a man is saying to a woman, we know what is best for you and this is against the rules. And she's saying, actually, I am an adult. I know the risks. I know what is best for me. And the truth is they were going to do it anyway. You know what I mean? And so the statistics do bear that out. They show that throughout time, women have gotten abortions, whether or not they're legal. Um, but back to the document, quote, modern medical techniques have altered this situation. Although not without its risk, abortion is now relatively safe. Mortality rates for women undergoing early abortions where the procedure is legal appear to be as low or lower than the rates for normal childbirth. Consequently, any interest of the state in protecting the woman from an inherently hazardous procedure has largely disappeared. Okay, so that means obviously that that paternal reason of protecting the woman from unsafe abortions by making them illegal is no longer relevant, right? Because it's a safe procedure now. Mm -hmm. um, so what we have now is a situation where because hospitals do have antibiotics and trained professionals and sterile equipment, um, abortion is extremely safe in a medical environment, but it's still extremely unsafe in an unregulated environment. So if the state really wants to protect women's lives, then it does need to keep abortion legal because making abortion illegal does not prevent women from getting abortions. It just endangers the lives, the lives of the women. And in my research project, um, I read about lots and lots of women all over the world in all different circumstances in such desperate situations that they performed their own abortions with whatever they could find, like poison that they found in the house, like the, you know, the medicine chest or whatever, and sticks that they would find outside, bicycle spokes that they would break off a bike wheel, like literally anything that they could find. Um, and we've all, of course, heard of back alley abortions too, where a woman doesn't think that she'll be able to do herself, but um, she'll go and just find some local practitioner who themselves usually have no medical training or sanitation or even a knowledge and understanding of anatomy. Um, and, you know, these practitioners are sometimes called butchers, right? Because even though I think sometimes they are seeking to help these women in desperate situations that don't have options anywhere else, they're sometimes just taking the money and doing a terrible job. They don't know what they're doing and they're just doing it for profit. And because these procedures take place secretly and illegally, there's no oversight to make sure they're performed in a clean, sterile environment. And so many, many women throughout history have died from these procedures. Um, and in fact, in parts of the world where abortion is illegal, botched abortions still cause about 8 to 11 percent of all maternal deaths. That's about 30,000 women every year. That percentage, 8 to 11 percent of all maternal deaths is because of botched abortions. That is very surprising to me. I'm I'm familiar with um, maternal deaths that are from hemorrhaging or from preeclamptic pre seizures, or um, from embolisms, you know, blood clots. I had no idea that roughly 10 out of 100 are from botched abortions. And that's really sad when you consider the fact that we have antibiotics now, mm. we have trained professionals, we have hospitals. Um, so 
we do see that the Supreme Court is speaking to this. I'm going to quote Justice Blackman. He said, the state has a legitimate interest in seeing to it that abortion, like any other medical procedure, is performed under circumstances that ensure maximum safety for the patient. This interest obviously extends at least to the performing physician and his staff, to the facilities involved, to the availability of aftercare, and to adequate provision for any complication or emergency that might arise. The prevalence of high mortality rates at illegal abortion mills strengthens rather than weakens the state's interest in regulating the conditions under which abortions are performed. Wow, yeah. I think that's one of the most important facts that I learned during my research project. So I think that quote is like one of the most important parts of Roe versus Wade, right? Where he acknowledges what what you just read, that the high mortality rates in these illegal facilities strengthens rather than weakens the state's interest in regulating um, the conditions under which abortions are performed. Like you just said, if you want to protect women, and that's what they were arguing before by saying you can't have abortions because we want to protect women, you need to make it legal if that's your goal to protect women Mm -hmm. because women will get abortions either way. So um, next, the document Roe versus Wade keeps talking about women's safety. And specifically now it's, it starts to talk about the fact that abortion is safest when it's performed early. It says, quote, moreover, the risk to the woman increases as her pregnancy continues. Thus, the state retains a definite interest in protecting the woman's own health and safety when an abortion is proposed at a late stage of pregnancy. End quote. Yeah, the risk to a woman definitely increases as pregnancy continues. So let's talk about late stage abortions. They are so rare and can usually be avoided if early abortions are legal and easy to procure and don't have a ton of hoops to jump through. Um, The more barriers and requirements for permission and waiting periods, the later the abortion takes place. However, there are cases where late stage abortion is needed. There are so many situations women can find themselves in that we can't anticipate. Um, I was extremely impacted by a Facebook post that our cousin shared about a year ago. A young woman named Destiny Young posted pictures of herself and her husband doing a big gender reveal with a pink puff of smoke to announce that they were having a girl. And they looked ecstatic next to a picture. So that picture was right next to a picture of her husband and her curled up together in a hospital bed. She wrote, If you're mad about the new abortion law in New York, please take a minute to read this. You're probably picturing the horrible women who decide last minute that they in fact don't want to be mothers and decide to kill their baby instead. I understand why that image makes you angry, so please look at these ones instead. After having two miscarriages, I almost died giving birth to my stillborn daughter. She had a genetic problem that was not compatible with life outside of the womb. We had no idea until she died at 32 weeks. Recovery was hard. I had an emergency C-section and lost more than half my blood. We stayed in the hospital for a week until my levels were okay enough to spend the next six weeks at home on bed rest, grieving the loss of my daughter. I'm 16 weeks pregnant now, and if we find out that this baby has the same genetic issues as our last, then we will be faced with the difficult decision of terminating the pregnancy, or again, possibly almost dying, giving birth to a stillborn baby. So I just wanted to show you who this law is for. It only allows for late-term abortions of babies that are going to die anyway, or for pregnancies that might kill the mother. This law is for the women who have been struggling for years to have a healthy baby, only to find out at the end of their pregnancy that their baby won't survive, or that if they continue the pregnancy, they will probably die. This law will give women a little bit of control of something so horrible happening to them. This law will save lives of women like me. That's a powerful story. And it strikes me in the same way as the story of my friend that I shared at the beginning. I just want to hug that woman and tell her that that's one of the hardest things I can even imagine. And then I just want everyone to get out of her way while she and her husband cry together and grieve and consult with doctors 
and make the decision that they need to make. I just, I think about that picture of Trump and Pence, um, like signing a law and making decisions and declarations regarding women, women's reproduction, or the picture of the men at the Vatican. And I just, it's so hard for me. I just think, what are you even thinking? Like, why why do you think you have the right to even weigh in on something so personal as that woman's life and her womb and her family? And they don't even know the woman. And those men are not doctors. So I just think just get out of the way and let them do what they need to do that's best for their lives. Just makes me so upset. I completely agree. We need to support and trust the women. They're the ones dealing with these situations. They know what is going on so much better than any of us watching from the outside. Mm -hmm. Um, Backing up, we mentioned two reasons why abortion was criminalized. And the third reason is the duty the state has to protect life or potential life. Um, Obviously, the state wants to protect the mother's life. um, But at what stage are we going to protect potential life? Does the state have a vested interest in the potential life of a 30-week fetus mm-hmm. or of a 20 or of a 7? Or at what at what stage do we say, okay, this is something that can grow into a life? Right. That's a hard, hard... That's why this is such a hard question, right? Mm-hmm. That's why this is so tricky. And I think it's a legitimate, important question to ask. And I think it's fine and it's good for people to ponder it and to have their own opinions and their own beliefs about what stage, you know, a a fertilized egg becomes its own life. I think that's an important philosophical question to ask. But I, I do think that people's claims of absolute knowledge on this matter, and especially their imposition of law based on their own personal religious beliefs, I just think it's um, inappropriate in a democracy where we espouse separation of church and state. And again, like I said before, if your religious belief says that you should never have an abortion, then that is absolutely fine. You don't ever have to have one. But I, I do have to say sometimes when I hear people who get just incensed about other areas of government getting into their personal business and they mm-hmm. get so angry about it, but then they fully support taking away someone else's rights about something that is like the most personal thing that there is, it just actually doesn't make sense to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, so the next part talks about the Constitution. Um, because again, the, this is a group of judges that is trying to determine constitutionality of prohibiting abortion, right? And so right. they have to defend and uphold the Constitution. Um, And so what it says is, quote, the Constitution does not explicitly mention any right of privacy. In a line of decisions, however, going back perhaps as far as Union Pacific Railroad Company versus Botsford, that in 1891, the court has recognized that a, a right of personal privacy or a guarantee of certain areas or zones of privacy does exist under the Constitution. And then in parentheses, it says this understanding of right to privacy also influenced the legalization of interracial marriage in Loving versus Virginia and the use of contraception in Eisenstadt versus Baird. Yay. I'm starting to love the right to privacy. It's not something that I had really thought of, but the right to privacy um, helped decide those things that are so wonderful and important. Totally. Yeah, exactly. And I was surprised by that, too. Like, I was Mm -hmm. just kind of reading I I must admit, because I'm not a lawyer and legal terms sometimes are like, I have to look them up and stuff as I was going through Roe v. Wade. So um, when I see like long lists of precedent cases where they're like in blah, blah, blah in this year, I just tend to skim. But then it was like, oh, Loving versus Virginia. Oh, my Mm -hmm. gosh, that's so interesting and cool. Wonderful. Yeah, so neat. And then the other thing I thought was the right of personal privacy, that there are zones of privacy, like literally my uterus is a zone of privacy. <laughs> I think that is really like, it is legitimate yes. to, to have that fall under that clause, right? Yes. Like a woman's, like that is the, the most- interior pri- of my body. <laughs> yes. Please, let's keep it private. Exactly. Good grief. I thought, oh yeah, that really does make sense. That's rational. 
Um, okay. So Justice Blackman says that some arguments for abortion, however, do go too far for the court at this time. And he says that some dissenting opinions, quote, argue that the woman's right is absolute and that she is entitled to terminate her pregnancy at whatever time, in whatever way, and for whatever reason she alone chooses. With this, we do not agree. We therefore conclude that the right of personal privacy includes the abortion decision, but that this right is not unqualified and must be considered against important state interests in regulation, end quote. So, I mean, given that we were just saying like, that's my, that's literally my private parts, like, Mm -hmm. and that is my right to privacy. He's saying, but that's not unqualified. That's not just unlimited. I personally do agree with that. I, in terms of, you can't make a philosophical argument in good faith that a person can just do whatever they want to with their own body, you know, whenever they choose, however they choose without regulation. And I think of the conversation that Lucy and I had on the episode on the UN Declaration of Human Rights, when, when Lucy was kind of exploring that Um, And she was saying, yeah, you can do whatever you want with your body as long as it doesn't hurt someone else's body. Um, Like Ed, um, Lucy's grandpa says, your right to throw a punch ends at the tip of my nose, right? Exactly. So philosophically to say, well, I can do whatever I want with my body. Of course you, I mean, of course you can, but you, if you, as soon as you hurt somebody else, then their rights come into play too. And so I actually do tend to agree with the judges because it's true that abortion does involve another, what you just said, like a potential human life. And so it's just not a good, good faith argument to pretend that that's not true. And I, I thought of like one thing that seemed disingenuous to me, for example, is on the Planned Parenthood website, when it's describing like the procedure of abortion, it says, that abortion removes pregnancy tissue. And that just bothers me because I think, I mean, it does, an abortion does remove pregnancy tissue. And in the very, very, very early stages of abortion, maybe it is just like a period, you know, for the woman. But as the, as the pregnancy progresses, it's not just pregnancy tissue. It's different from just having a period. And I, I, I think that it, it makes a, an honest conversation really hard to have when people are not being honest about what a complicated moral choice it is. Yeah. That's just my opinion. I can understand that. And I do think that it's, it just comes back to the question of when does pregnancy tissue become a life? Right. Because um, we're even even just the names that we're giving things are loaded. Yes, right? yes. Planned Parenthood says products of of conception or pregnancy tissue and that feels um like a slap a slap to the face if you are pro-life mm-hmm. you know and you think no that's a potential life that's a baby that's a baby because some people will call it a baby mm-hmm. from like the moment of conception and so someone else might say like that's disingenuous though that right. is not a baby because they say oh well it could be a blighted ovum for all you know that's not right. gonna so we just don't know right um and i'm actually going to dive into a quote here it says we need not resolve the difficult question of when life begins when those trained in the respective disciplines of medicine philosophy and theology are unable to arrive at any consensus the judiciary at this point in the development of man's knowledge is not in a position to speculate as to the answer it should be sufficient to note briefly the wide divergence of thinking on this most sensitive and difficult question There has always been strong support for the view that life does not begin until live birth. This was the belief of the Stoics. It appears to be the predominant, though not the unanimous, attitude of the Jewish faith. Yes, this was so interesting to me and um, really new. Like, I I had never thought about that before. And I think before reading Roe versus Wade, I think I definitely would have painted with too broad a brush when I, you know, maybe would would categorize like, oh, people of faith tend to be pro-life, for example, or, or you know, conservative religious people tend to be pro-life. And so reading this about um, the Jewish faith, 
I did a little bit more reading about it because um, that was new information to me and it really grabbed my attention. So it turns out that the Bible does not mention abortion. Um, the Talmud, which is another sacred Jewish text, that it includes the original oral version of the Torah and then a compendium of rabbis' teachings. Um, the Talmud describes a human being as a soul when the head emerges from the mother. So I found an article in USA Today that describes the frustration that some Jewish people feel when Christians refer to the Bible, which is, of course, the sacred book that they share, as prohibiting abortion because it doesn't. <laughs> um, there's a quote from Donya Rutenberg, who's a Chicago-based rabbi, and she says, it makes me apoplectic. Most of the proof texts that they're bringing in for this are ridiculous. They're using my sacred text to justify taking away my rights, end quote. Um, while some Orthodox rabbis have denounced abortion, within Jewish communities, there's considerable support for keeping it legal. Studies from the Pew Research Center show that Jews overwhelmingly, 83%, support abortion rights. This is, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm quoting from the USA Today article. And I'll continue to quote from it here. Debbie Wasserman Schultz is a Jewish congresswoman from Florida. She says, quote, I have always served and looked at policy through a distinctly Jewish lens. And so for me, when I'm thinking about a woman's right to make her own reproductive choices, the Jewish tradition that I've always been taught holds that existing life should take precedence over potential life, and a woman's life and her pain should take precedence over a fetus. End of quote. For Wasserman Schultz, abortion access should be unrestricted regardless of faith. Quote, I'm not going to tell you that you're interpreting scripture incorrectly, but don't prescribe rules for me and my decisions based on your interpretation of your scripture. End of quote. That's so powerful. No one wants to be ruled by someone else's moral compass. Yeah. Um, I thought it was so interesting to hear that idea from the Talmud that life begins when the head emerges from the mother. Um, we've discussed quickening as a possible time for when life begins and now it's when the no when the head emerges or maybe it's when there's a heartbeat however doctors usually focus more on the time at which the child becomes viable or able to live outside the mother albeit with assistance yeah so do you think viability is an appropriate cutoff date cuz it i mean there's argu there's arguments like you said for all these different points but viability seems logical to me but then I thought, too, that I'm guessing that viability keeps getting earlier and earlier with more medical advances, right? Mm -hmm. I feel like I've seen that. I've, I think I said in the first um, episode, I'm a labor and delivery nurse, and I ha have been working as such for 13 years. And I've seen that date get earlier just in the time I've been practicing. Oh, wow. Um, and sometimes it's really just a question of... What supplies do we have in the hospital? Can we resuscitate this baby? You know, if if it if a mom is twenty three weeks, but we think it might be large, and we've got a very small um, laryngoscope that we use for getting the baby to actually be breathing and ventilated, then we might try. So mm. viability is again not not a specific point as far as I know, but. Mm. Um, inherent in this whole discussion is looking for a cutoff date, right? Mm. The place where we draw a line in the sand and say, okay, at this point, the mother's life is more important, or at this point, the baby's potential life is too compelling to allow abortion. Um, we're always, we're just looking for that point, right? Yeah. But I will continue with a quote from Roe versus Wade. Each, meaning the health concerns of the mother and the health concerns of the fetus, grow in substantiality as the woman approaches term and at a point during pregnancy each becomes compelling with respect to the state's important and legitimate interest in the health of the mother the compelling point in the light of present medical knowledge is at approximately the end of the first trimester this is so because of the now established medical fact that until the end of the first trimester mortality in abortion may be less than mortality in normal childbirth it follows that from and after this point, 
A state may regulate the abortion procedure to the extent that the regulation reasonably relates to the preservation and protection of maternal health. Uh, that, that is preferable to um, protect maternal health. However, to return to the situation of Destiny Young, if you're drawing a line that ends at the end of the first trimester, yeah. um, sometimes women don't know that there's a fetal genetic problem until the second. You'll recall that story. Destiny said she was 15 weeks. Mm-hmm. That's the second trimester. Yeah. And so um, in areas other than criminal abortion, I'm sorry, I'm quoting here. Mm-hmm. In areas other than criminal abortion, the law has been reluctant to endorse any theory that life, as we recognize it, begins before live birth or to accord legal rights to the unborn except in narrowly defined situations and except when the rights are contingent upon live birth. Um, I'm going to just take a step away from the quote there and just say what they're saying is we can't really give rights to a baby that's inside its mother. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll go back to the quote. Quote, in a recent development generally opposed by the commentators, some states permit the parents of a stillborn child to maintain an action for wrongful death because of prenatal injuries. In short, the unborn have never been recognized in the law as persons in the whole sense. End quote. Yeah, and I've even read cases about where the state prosecutes a mother for injuries to the fetus if it causes a miscarriage. There's, there were several articles about that that I read in, in my research. So I think that that can just really go way too far. If you classify a fetus as a person with its own rights, that can be like really, really easily abused almost. Absolutely. This actually makes me so, so sad. Um, I remember uh, one story uh, that I will share. I remember a woman coming into labor and delivery. Um, She was 22 weeks. She maybe was 23, but it was right around the the questioned viability line. Mm -hmm. Um, She came in and said she had just low back pain. And I remember taking her history, feeling her abdomen. It was soft. So I thought, okay, she's not contracting. She's not in labor. But the doctor said, why don't you just check her cervix? And I remember I thought, okay, I'll, I'll check and see if she's dilated at all, but she's 22 or 23 weeks. I don't think she will be. And I will never forget the feeling. I went and checked her cervix and there was not any. Hmm. And what does that mean? So she was completely dilated um, her low back pain that she had had, even though it was just mild, was contractions. And she, it was like, all I could feel was just a bulging amniotic bag. And behind the bag, I could feel, well, through the bag, I could feel little fingers brushing against my fingers. Oh my goodness. And my heart dropped and I thought, oh no, no. I told the doctor and the doctor said, okay, well, I'll come and break water. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is, baby is going to die. Mm-hmm. And the baby came out right after they broke water and the mom held it until it passed away. And I share that story right here because I remember the grief that was in that room with that mom who had just delivered a baby completely unplanned at 22 weeks. And if you were to bring a case against her for having done something wrong, I can't, I don't actually even have words for how wrong that feels to me. Every single case that I've ever had where a mom has come in and the baby has passed away in utero, the one of the first questions they ask me is, what did I do? Mm. What did I do something that caused this? I remember one couple and the where the the husband looked at me and said, oh, "We went to a movie last night that was really really loud. Do you think that could Aww. have cost us this baby?" And a lot of what I do is reassuring and saying, "No, nothing. You've done nothing wrong." So then to think that we could make this a criminal thing. Wow. It's just wrong. Yeah. Oh, that's heartbreaking. 
I'm just glad in Roe versus Wade, the justices determined that the state didn't have the right to to say um, that before live birth, this is a human life and that you can prosecute, you know, things that happen, you know. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it just, I think it's important to value the unborn child's life. Obviously, I value that. And I love, I love pregnancy and babies and the magic of life. But we need to also consider so many other things. Mm. That's powerful, Lindsay. I mean, yes, you above all. And that's why it's so um, valuable to have you as um, a reader of this text and making comments. You literally have dedicated your life to the healthy birth of babies and mothers. Mm -hmm. And so your perspective is just so valuable. And thanks for sharing those stories. So just one last quote before we wrap up um, is this one, and I'll just read it. Quote, the attending physician in in consultation with his patient is free to determine without regulation by the state that in his medical judgment, the patient's pregnancy should be terminated. If that decision is reached, the judgment may be effectuated by an abortion free of interference by the state, end quote. So obviously, this is a really important sentence, right, that the attending physician consults with the patient and they decide, and that that physician does have um, the right to act on his judgment in performing that medical procedure without interference by the state. That's the first point. The second point is that all the possessive pronouns are male <laughs> in that sentence. The doctors are assumed to be to be male, and in the 1970s, they mostly were, right? Um, and so keep that in mind also as I read this next quote too, which is part of the Roe v. Wade decision. Quote, the abortion decision in all its aspects is inherently and primarily a medical decision and basic responsibility for it must rest with the physician, end quote. So I just think, again, I mean, I do think it's appropriate that doctors are involved and it's important, it's critical actually that abortions take place in hospitals with with trained medical professionals. But again, this is part of a project on patriarchy because um, this this quote that I just read says it that the responsibility rests with the physician and the physicians at that time were all men. And it says, you know, even without interference by the state, the state was all men. The person writing this document document was a man representing a group of justices on the Supreme Court who were at the time 100 percent men. Mm -hmm. And I just want to highlight that one more time, um, because in my view, the abortion is inherently, primarily a woman's decision and the basic responsibility for it must rest with the woman, not not even with the physician. And especially not if everyone who's weighing in and everyone who's making the rules and everyone who's, you know, deciding where all the lines are, are all men. I just wanted to highlight that one more point or one more time. So that wraps up our discussion today. And we usually end by sharing a takeaway or two. And so if it's okay, I'll just share one of my thoughts. And then, Linz, I'll ask if you will share just a key point or two. Sure. So for me, again, one of the most surprising features of Roe versus Wade was the tone of gravity and sensitivity and the acknowledgement that anytime there's a woman saying, I need an abortion, it is because of a sad circumstance in her life. It is not a happy circumstance, no matter what the reason is. If she says, I am pregnant and there's a problem, I need to end the pregnancy, right? So as I said at the beginning of our last episode, both men and women on every part of the political spectrum, I would think, would agree that abortion is not a happy thing for anyone. So what can we do to decrease the number of abortions? Um, As I mentioned, I did extensive research on the data and some of the facts are these, and you can check out all the citations on the website if, if you would like to. Um, to listeners. 
Abortion is sought and needed even in settings where it is restricted, that is, in countries where it is prohibited altogether or is allowed only to save a woman's life. Unintended pregnancy rates are highest in countries that restrict abortion access and lowest in countries where abortion is broadly legal. So the abortion rate is actually higher in countries that restrict abortion access than in those that do not. In countries that restrict abortion, the percentage of unintended pregnancies ending in abortion has increased during the past 30 years, from 36% in 19, from 1990 to 1994 to 50% between 2015 and 2019. Um, so in summary, abortion rates are lower in countries where it is legal and higher in countries where it is illegal. And this is, of course, correlated also with an overall approach to reproduction. So the Netherlands is a really great example of doing things effectively. In the Netherlands, they enjoy one of the lowest rates of unwanted pregnancy in the world and one of the lowest abortion rates in the world. Um, and if you look at just kind of a multi-pronged approach to this, in the Netherlands, they teach their children about sex starting in preschool. They have displays on sex in their children's museums. They talk about sex openly, and their population has access to cheap, effective birth control, which both men and women use because men feel equally responsible in the process. Um, and there are all kinds of positive outcomes associated with that comprehensive approach. In fact, I'm just going to read a couple. In a, in a 2018 article in The Atlantic called How the Dutch Do Sex Ed, the author reports, quote, on average, Dutch and American teenagers have sex for the first time around the same age, between 17 and 18 years old, but with dramatically different results. American teenagers still give birth at five times the rate of their Dutch peers. And the Dutch teenagers also have far fewer abortions. In the United States, people under 25 make up half of all new STI cases each year, while young people in the Netherlands account for 10% of new cases in the country. Socially, sex is different too. Sexually active young people in Holland sleep around less. They communicate more often with their partners, and they report higher rates of sexual satisfaction. End quote. I mean, that's pretty compelling data. Yes. So my takeaway is reducing unwanted pregnancy seems to me to be a goal that everyone can get behind. We know how to do it. So I think we should just look at the data and do what is working. And that means education, contraception, and access to safe legal abortion. So that's my takeaway. What would you say a main takeaway is for you, Lindsay, or something that you want to leave your listeners with? I think that um, mentioning contraception and education and preventive health care are really important. I don't think you can talk about abortion without talking about those things because they're all part of the reproductive lives of, I would say, mostly women, but also just of everyone. Mm -hmm. Um and I love giving people options and then supporting and trusting women with what they choose. Um, I think that women are capable of making wise and courageous decisions. I've seen all kinds of things in labor and delivery from whether you want to get an epidural or not, or are you going to breastfeed or bottle feed? Um, I know a woman who chose to have an abortion because she was a teenager and she knows she she knew she didn't have the strength or the wisdom to raise a child and her abortion was driven by a desire to provide children with capable prepared parents that choice was not willy-nilly for her mm -hmm. and i respect her her choice i know a woman who was raped and chose not to have an abortion she had a couple of children already and she treated her pregnancy like it was um, a growth. And at the end of 40 weeks, we were told to be a surgical team. And we excised the growth. And then we brought that baby to another family that could adopt it. And then the woman that had borne the child was able to move forward with her life in the way that she chose was best. 
And I think that women can make all kinds of beautiful choices. But like you say, we have to get out of the way. Um, I've mentioned it before. I've helped countless women deliver babies that have passed away in utero. And I can't even explain the grief that I've seen them experience. Um, I've seen them explain what's happened to their families and the tears and the sorrow. But I've also seen some of the most inspiring courage that that I can even imagine. It's incredible, these women. And whether the pregnancies end accidentally during the pregnancy or whether a mom has to choose to end the life of her baby, the loss would be awful. The pain immense. And I think we have to just have compassion and trust these wonderful, brave women. So that's my main takeaway. I think there's as many circumstances as there are women in this entire world. And there's no way that, that we can know what is best for each one, whether it's a teen mom in Pakistan or a 40 year old, you know, it's her fifth pregnancy in Canada, or it's the, you know, all around the world, there's just too many circumstances. And we just need to give the power back to women and then stand back and watch what they choose because it's usually wise and courageous and beautiful. Hmm. Thank you so, so very much, Lindsay. Thanks for reading with me and thank you for your incredibly insightful comments and for sharing the wisdom that comes from your own personal experiences. Thank you so much for being here. Well, it was my pleasure. I had never read Roe versus Wade and I found it very, very enlightening. And um, just thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, on our next episode of Breaking Down Patriarchy, we will discuss the book, This Bridge Called My Back, Writings by Radical Women of Color by Cherie Moraga and Gloria Ansalua. This is an anthology of women's work that was published in 1981, and it centers on the experiences of women of color, emphasizing the points of what we now call intersectionality within women's multiple identities. This book made a huge impact on the field of women's studies when it first came out, and it's required reading in many women's studies curricula. Um, as I've said before, one of my main goals in doing this project is to bring these texts and these ideas kind of out of academia and get them circulating more widely among men and women who haven't ever had a chance to take a women's studies course. And I personally found my mind and my heart to be hugely expanded by reading this book. It was really a gift to me to be able to get inside the thoughts and the hopes and the worries of so many women um, that I had never really had the opportunity to hear from before. And so I highly, highly recommend this book, especially for listeners who want to expand their understanding and their empathy. So join us for a very enriching discussion next time of the book, This Bridge Called My Back, Writings by Radical Women of Color, next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. Mm -hmm.